We are going to begin today talking about Yosef. Yosef. Joseph. Now, for Rabbi Soloveitchik, he had, it seems, an affinity for Yosef. I think it went beyond the fact that they had a common name. There was something about Yosef's life that Rabbi Soloveitchik identified with, which may emerge partially from what we'll see today. But in fact, in Rabbi Soloveitchik's first work of philosophy, he opens it up with the quote when Yosef is in when Yosef is sitting there about to sin in Potiphar's house it says he saw the he saw his father's image peering down at him and Rabbi Soloveitchik symbolically opens up his work of philosophy with this line almost to say like I recognize I am breaking with the tradition of my family of brisk which we spoke about in the past which was this Torah only approach of just the base measures of Torah and I've entered into the world of the, the western thought Additionally, he, another place where he broke with his family was when, he, was when he joined Mizrahi. The Brisk dynasty has always been and still is very opposed to Zionism for their own reasons, not necessarily the same reasons as the Hasidic, in the Hasidic world. But Rabbi Soloveitchik broke with them when he joined Mizrahi. Now, even his own Zionism is not necessarily the Zionism of the Mizrahi that we know nowadays. He would not be comfortable with the phrase Rashid Smichas Gulasenu, the first flowering of our redemption. He had his own conception of what Zionism was and why we're celebrating Islam. We'll get to it at some point this year, hopefully. But as well, in his address, when he starts discussing Zionism, he opens it up discussing Yosef and who Yosef was, and we'll get to that address today as well. Because, again, identifying with the idea of Yosef was someone who was able to stand against the tide. So Rabbi Salvechik clearly saw himself within the character of Yosef. What I want to do today is talk about Yosef and especially try to figure out what was it that Yosef did that aroused the animosity of his brothers. What was it that caused, as we know, clearly it wasn't that one day his brothers woke up and said, Yosef, we need a little cash so we can go to the corner store and buy ourselves some soda. They wanted to get rid of Yosef. They wanted to even kill Yosef. And only at last, the last moment, it seemed, because of a last-ditch last effort of their brother, they sold him into slavery. So Yosef must have done something. What was it that he did? He so we'll, we'll discuss it. I have multiple approaches. What was it that he did? I want to go and try to develop a little bit of what was it, and we'll see it. It comes down to not just a few things that he did, but actually at the root of who Yosef was is his character. And from there... Now we're saying we're being negative about the brothers. They decided to sell him off. Uh, because they wanted a little cash well, to buy soda in the corner? No, no. I mean, from Yosef's standpoint, what, what, he must have done something. He, I, I, assume, I assume most brothers don't wake up one day and say, we're going to kill our brother for no reason. I would hope, especially people such as the Shvatim, who are considered the leaders of the Jewish people and the people who we, uh, we hope we want to emulate. So then again, what we, my hope is over the next hour or so, or whatever it is, half hour, 45 minutes, to develop and try to figure out a couple ideas of who Yosef was, but then really to settle on one of the ideas and see it was something about his character, and from there to learn a lesson for us in general, but particularly when it comes to the world of Hanukkah. So, let's open up with the very first verse, the first source. Eilat told us Yaakov, Yosef, and Shiva Asishana. This is the told us the story of Yaakov. He had a son, Yosef, who was 17. Hayiro as Achev, Etzon, Hunar. He tended the flocks with his brothers, 
as the helper to his father. He was a nar, a nar being a young boy. We're going to come back to that word. As B'nai Bilov, as B'nai Zilpah, not only the children of his, um, of Rachel and Leah, but also the, the sister wives, the, whatever that funny relationship was with Bill and Zilpah there. And the Apostle Great tells us that Yosef used to bring bad reports about them to their father. Tattletale. Exactly, tattletale. Now, working with the assumption, which we're going to work with today, that Yosef and the Shvatim were great people, and even at a young age, they still, there, there's, there's more to the story than simply just tattling. So if you look at the from there, it seems that there was almost a disagreement about how to interpret certain things. But, let's go on a little more. V'Yisrael Oev is Yosef, Mikol Banov. Always a recipe for healthy family dynamics. Yaakov, it's interesting, by the way, calls him Yisrael here, as in the name in last week's parasha, well, in this week's parasha, actually, when, in this week's parasha, when Yaakov gets into a fight with the angel, and at the end, when he ultimately perseveres, the angel says, let me go, and he goes, bless me, he changes his name, and says, you will no longer be called Yaakov, from now on, you'll be called Yisrael. Which, interestingly, by the way, we've heard that said before, with Avram. You'll no longer be called Avram, now you'll be called Avram, and what happens? From then on, we're always called Avram, so much so, it seems to me there may be even a prohibition to call him Avram after his name is now Avraham. Whereas Yisrael, we reiterate that, you're no longer Yaakov, now you're going to be Yisrael, and lo and behold, we call him Yaakov just a couple seconds later. <coughs> so we're not going to get into what's going on there, but I would say, just food for thought, there may be something about Yaakov being, we call him Yaakov when we're discussing him within his family, and we revert to Yisrael when we talk more about the destiny, and him more as a figure for destiny. Klal Yisrael, the children of Israel. Not Klal Yaakov. Either way, Yisrael always Yosef Mikol Banov, and Yaakov loves Yisrael more than all of his other children. He bends the because he was a child of his old age. So he makes him this coat of many colors. So not only does he love him so much because again he's the Ben Zekunim, he's, he's the youngest after many after many years. He's also the youngest. He's the, he's the only son at this point, the only child from Rachel, who we know was the child, the wife that Yaakov actually wanted to marry. But then he goes ahead and he creates this garment, this, this cloak that you can, of many colors, so that not only do the brothers know, oh, by the way, our father clearly favors him, but now whenever he's walking around, it's clearly apparent. And we know it must have really bothered them to the extent that what's the first thing they did after they, they, they got upset at him? They ripped this garment off him. Fine. By Yerachel, he also of Avihem, and the brothers saw that he loved them more, so they in turn hate him. They could not speak friendly to him. As in this, this animosity and this contentment begins to brew to the fact that they, 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 get, they get so upset about this favoritism that they're no longer even able to speak friendly with him. Think about the, the sibling rivalry when the kid comes down in the morning and they can't even say hello. They'll just pass the sugar or whatever they have to shop at the, the morning breakfast table. And this is what's happening. So the question again is, what exactly is happening? At face value, if I ask you, what is going on here? Why do the brothers hate Yosef? What would you tell me? Because his father loved him more. Not because of the bad reports, but he loved him more. Well, it, it, it seems to be. Yeah. It says bad reports. It doesn't say with whom. The wives, the brothers, are both. And again, Very, because, for sure. Because the father loved him more, not because of bad reports. Elliot. He was obnoxious in what sense? Yeah. Yeah, that he was a and, and, 
All right, so I think we're, I think both makes sense. Elliot's saying if you, if you just read the verses, it, it seems to say they hate him because he loved him more. But I don't think Ellen's off either. You know, it can also, that can also play. Instead, he was a tattletale. Maybe his father loved him more because he was constantly his father because of because he um he was constantly going and telling what was going on. So this is I think again simply if you look at the verses, if you look, if you look in the Mefarshim, they start to flesh it out even a little more. Can I bother someone to get me a cup of water? Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Rashi says. He picks up in the word, says, Vahun Na'ar. He was a young lad. He did things that ch- children do. Metake Masaro, he constantly was, he was playing with his hair. He was playing with his eyes. He was obsessed with his appearance. He was standing, he was standing in front of the mirror all the time. You know, like, you know when that, your kids at some point, they hit like that age when suddenly they just become obsessed with their appearance and they want to look cool and everything? Anyway, 11, 12, whenever it may be. So this is yeah, Yosef, he was, he was a child. He was a child. Is this the reason they hated him? I don't know, but it could be. Again, he's, he's a lot younger, and you can imagine it. You have a lot older siblings. They're the ones who are in business. And you have a younger kid who just wants to kind of tag along. When the kid's first born, Baruch I don't know if I'm supposed to call him When the kid's first born, it's cute. But at a certain point, it becomes a little annoying. It's like, come on, you're doing childish things. We're doing real things. We're out in the world. Go play with your toys. Come back to this in a couple of years. That's what Rashi says. Is it a reason for hate? I don't know, but it's a reason. It's an annoyance. Annoyance. And maybe that annoyance becomes hate once the realist of father still favors him. The Sephorno says a little more than that. He says not, not just that he was obsessed with his appearance, but he was very naive. Listen to what he says. It's actually very perceptive. Utei Naruso, because of his, his uh, immaturity, he used to badmouth his brothers. He used to come to them and say, this is what, you know, Reuven is doing, this is what Zavulan is doing, this is what Yisachar is doing, etc. And he didn't think about the long-term consequences of talking about his brothers in front of his father because he was immature. Sometimes you could be correct, but it's, what, it's not always what you say, it's how you say it. He was immature. So I don't even want to, we can even assume it wasn't Lush and Harvest, that's what I'm saying. Sometimes it's not what you say, it's how you say it. And because, and because he was a young boy, and he's coming to his father and saying things that sometimes we know young kids can say things that are the most insightful and on target, and it stings the most because they're young and they're immature and they don't realize in their naivete about feelings and emotions and about long-term effects. It's funny, I was just, I was just telling Emma last night, I have a sibling, I won't mention who it was. She is a, a very strong, now she's a very strong young woman. When she was, I think, eight or nine years old, my parents were away, and she was home. Was I, I, I assume it was. She wasn't home alone. I think my grandparents were there. We had a, someone who came to clean our home. My parents were away for a week. She used to come on Mondays and Fridays. Monday, the lady was there, and she went into the fridge and helped herself to some food in the fridge. I assume my mother must have told her, if you're ever hungry, take something. Well, that food happened to have been my sister's. Either way, Friday, there's a knock on the door, and this woman comes back to clean the house. My sister opens the door and says, Hi, you're no longer working here anymore, and close the door. Because when you're young and immature, you don't think of the long-term consequences. That happened to be, I think my parents also wanted to fire her, but they never kind of, they felt bad firing this w- poor woman. So, but you have an 8-year-old who was a strong-willed 8-year-old, and now she's a strong-willed, uh, I'm not going to give her age, she don't know which one of my sisters it is. But uh, again, we are not thinking of the consequences, so you can do that. So you're, here's Yosef, he's young, he's immature, and he kind of says things because, hey, Dad, look, look what they're doing. 
And again, it ends up with it ends up being that it creates his animosity, it creates his hate. They're not able to speak friendly with him. Others suggest, yeah. I, we're not, I'm not defending it. I'm not defending. It. We're trying to we're trying to develop Yosef's character. Others suggest, and the Ramban says that the fact that Yaakov appointed him to be the, the head of his business that started creating some animosity. Why are you choosing him? And I think the Abarbanel actually has a very insightful insight. Anyone ever reads the Abarbanel? So the Abarbanel, they, they, the joke is, if you read the Abarbanel, you become a heretic, because what the Abarbanel does is he'll open up with like eight or nine questions, which are paragraph. Each one's a paragraph. And then he gives his answer, but by the time you get through all his questions, you don't have time for the answer, so you just left with a lot of questions. So that's the joke, become a heretic if you learn the Bible now. But in, in, his question, in his, one of his answers, he says, think about this from the perspective of history. You have Avraham. Avraham has two children. Older child, Yishmael. Younger child, Yitzhak. Older child is his child, he loves his child, but ultimately what happens? Yitzhak usurps Yishmael, he becomes the heir apparent, he ends up becoming the, take, inheriting everything from, inheriting the, um, the Abrahamic dynasty, and Yishmael's pushed aside, he goes off to Mount Seir, etc. Next generation, you have Yitzhak. Yitzhak has two children. Older son is Esau, younger son is Yaakov. What happens? Yaakov goes to his place, Excuse me, Esau goes to his place. Yaakov is the one who ultimately takes over the business and takes over the family. He becomes the heir apparent. He, he takes over the Abrahamic dynasty. Now you have the next generation. You have Yaakov has many children. Older sons are there. Comes along the youngest son. It only makes sense that Yaakov's going to do what he saw Abraham do. And so, and so he saw what the Zayda did. He saw what the, what the Tata did. He's going to do the same thing. And the brothers now are like, wait one minute. We don't want such a thing. And so the reason this animosity develops, the hatred develops, is because they're like, wait, we're trying to just protect ourselves. We don't want to be rejected from the family. We don't want to be ejected from the family. We don't want to be sent, sent out. Like Esau got sent out to his place, and Ishmael got sent out to his place. And therefore, they ended up starting to loathe and hate Yosef. It could, again, I, again, I think it's, we're trying to develop the character here. The killing also could have been uh, in the heat of the moment. But what ha- the way that comes to that is oftentimes, oftentimes crimes of passion develop over time. The, the heat of the moment, that one split-second decision is because of long-simmering discontent and hatred or whatever it may be. So before we even get to that moment, what is building towards it? So I think it's interesting. Simple verses, Yaakov seemed to favor him, which also chosen to be the, the business. We had Rashi who said he was immature. We had the Sephorno who said that he was immature, he was naive, and he used to say things and it hurt them. And we had the Abarbanel, which I think is a very insightful comment that from, from the perspective of history, they thought they were about to be ejected from the family and they wanted to protect, their, protect themselves. However, Rabbi Salvechik takes a different approach. Rabbi Salvechik takes a different approach and he says, if you want to understand why this discontent, why this, this breakdown happened in the family, you have to understand who Yosef was. And to understand who Yosef was, you have to go into what made Yosef great. And that was Yosef the Baal HaChalomos, Yosef as a dreamer. We have to go and develop who Yosef was by looking at him as a dreamer. Which is interesting, by the way, because when Yosef goes to find his brothers... The story, Yosef, Yaakov says to Yosef one day, go find your brothers. This is the, Yosef goes, first of all, Rabbi Salih points this out. He goes, he first he goes to the first place and he meets a mysterious Ish. A mysterious person, doesn't say who it was. 
And the Ish says, oh, you've got to go over to Shechem, and that's where your brothers are found. Right? Salvation points out, anytime we're in a moment, a critical moment in history, there's always a mysterious Ish. Mysterious person. Who that person is, it doesn't have to be named, because that's... Well, Rashi says it was the angel, it was the angel Gabriel. But that's also perhaps God's way, God's, it's God's hand in history. It's through the mysterious Ish. Either way, so what happens? Yossi starts approaching these brothers in Shechem, and the Bayeres Merachok, the brothers see him from afar. And that's when they say, oh, here's our brother coming, and that's the moment, the heat of the moment, let's kill him. Each one turns to the brother, they say, Here comes that dreamer. Here comes the dreamer. So again, that seems to imply, again, the, 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 the slur they have from him is the dreamer. There's something about the dreams that set, that, that got, that set them off, that got them upset, calling him the Bala Halomos. Just a random story. When I was in, I believe, second grade, I was always a decent student, until I wasn't. But I was in second grade, I used to space out a lot. My mother was once called to the principal's office, and the principal was complaining to my mother how I used to space out a lot. So my mother said to him, well, isn't it apropos? His name is Yosef, and Yosef was the Bala Halomos, the dreamer. She didn't realize the principal's name was Yosef as well. He didn't find it funny. I still spaced out. All right. So what's the story with the dreams? You always do the dreamers. So let's go. Let's read through the dreams, and then we're gonna let, let, we'll, we'll slowly take them apart and understand who Yosef was. So Yosef's brothers already are not very happy with him, as we noted, for all these reasons. And then one day, again, just think of the family dynamic. You have, the, you have this dinner table going on there. They're all eating, and they're all kind of like sneering at Yosef. I don't know if they're happening at your table. That one, one sibling who everyone else was upset at. And you was like, oh, by the way, last night when, I, when you were all sleeping, I had a dream. You want to hear my dream? And this is going to cause him to hate him more. He said, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Now, when he said I had a dream, they knew, again, listen to this. We were all sitting in the field, binding together sheaves. Suddenly, my sheaf gets up, it remains upright, and all your sheaves gather around me and they bow down to my sheaf, implying servitude, subservience. Do you mean to reign over us? Do you mean to rule over us? And they hated him even more for these dreams. Here's Yosef saying that I'm having these dreams where I am going to be the leader. Like, you hate me now, and you think I'm, I'm, I'm a pain in the neck now, I'm a thorn in your side now. Well, I have these grand visions where I'm going to be the leader, these visions of grandeur. I'm going to be the leader to the fact that you're all going to be bowing down to me. Doesn't sound like it goes well. Next one. He says, oh, that's not enough. I had enough a dream. Don't worry, we're, we're, we're still going here. They said, okay, tell us, Yosef, what's this, this, what's this next dream? Not just you guys. Do you think you guys are just bowing down to me? Like the things in the world that everyone is subservient to, as the sun and the moon, or the sun that goes out, the world collapses. Everything revolves around the sun. And all the stars, the constellations, like now, it's not just like you guys are subservient to me, but like the entire, I'm the center of the universe. 
I'm the, I, I, I'm, I'm the man. Galileo is wrong here. It's not that the sun, we go around the sun. The sun goes around me. You know, you're reading this. You're like, I know people in my life who think they're Yosef. I know more than one person in my life who think they're Yosef, which is kind of a steer. It's a kind of a contradiction. You can't all be Yosef. But that, hey, physics is funny. Okay, at this point, the brothers had it with him. And that's when they go off, and, and this sets the tone. So what's going on here? What is going on here? So right, Salvation points out a number of amazing things. He says it wasn't that Yosef was a small, a nar, who was just saying, had these dreams, of, uh, these dreams of grandeur because he thought he'd be a leader. First of all, he says, if you look at the dream carefully, he says, suddenly my sheath gets up. That implies that the leadership was thrust upon him. It wasn't something he, he volunteered for. He's saying, he's saying again, these aren't dreams that he just, he's conjuring his head because he's, you know, these are from, you know, during the day he was thinking these things and at night that's what he's thinking of. But these were, this was in a way a nevuah, a prophecy. God is saying to him, you're going to be a leader whether you like to or not. But what's going on here? Why did it arise? Why did it, why did it cause animosity? So, her first points out as follows. You can look at the quote there. It is remarkable he should have dreamt about binding sheaves. This was something which was ordinary, which ordinarily they had not, no connection. Why? What were, the, what were the Jewish people at this point? They were shepherds. To become an agricultural people laid for them still at their destiny in a distant future. One day they'd have a land. One day they'd all have their own plots of land where they can grow and they can plant and they can sow the soil. And they can, but until now, they were a nomadic group traveling from place to place in the land of Israel, even before that. Avram was, had to go from one place all the way to another place. It's like they're all traveling all the time. Right? The, whole, the whole story of the forefathers, they're traveling from place to place. If agriculture was so much in his mind that he dreamt of it, the brothers were justified in thinking that that could only be due to the teaching and information given to him by his father Israel over the expected national destiny of the house. And more than that, could the brothers believe themselves justified in saying, well, indeed the future be king over us, perhaps even rule over us. Such a thought could never occur even in a dream. They were taken aback, A, by two things. One is they said it must be that the father told them this, which created jealousy. But also, I think, they realized that Yosef was coming from somewhere totally different. For them, until now, until now, their brothers, they all kind of came, they came from the same stock. They all felt the same thing. Life is good. Comes on Yosef, and he's like, no, things can be different. I have a different vision of what humanity can look like, not a nomadic group of tribes going from place to place, but settling down, tilling the soil, as, 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 as Rabbi Israel said, planting vineyards, having a house, having a couch, house. being in place, exactly. That he, was, he had a totally different conception of what things would be. He was going against the tide. He was saying, I'm not afraid to go against the tide and have a different vision for where humanity is going. And that already is scary. It's scary when someone gets up there and says, let's do things differently. Let's do things differently. It was radical as well. <laughs> And what caused Yosef to do this, though? What caused Yosef to, to go against the tide, to buck the trend, to say, I don't mind doing this more than that, I have a different vision? So Ray Salvatic argues as follows, that Yosef had two fears. Fear number one was he feared that once Yaakov passes away, the destiny, the covenantal community entrusted to Avraham or given to Avraham by God, who then gave it to Yitzchak, who then gave it to Yaakov, would disintegrate. And we probably all know this in our lives, especially those of you among us who are a little older. Think of, you many, many of you probably have cousins, and, and cousins beyond your cousins, had cousins growing up who you're no longer close with, who your children probably don't know are your cousins. I'll tell you this in my own life. 
my great-grandmother, my grandfather told me she held the family together. She came to America. She was very young. And so long as she was alive, all of her relatives who came to America as well, she came right after the First World War. They were all very close. She was the matriarch of the family. My grandfather is the youngest of all the cousins. His oldest cousin was many, many years older than him, would be over 100 now. He was the youngest. He said he grew up, all his cousins were constantly coming through his home. All his uncles constantly going through his home. But once his, his mother passed away, the family kind of fell apart. And, you know, as much as it's sad, it's also it's a reality of life, and it's part of, like, but then we all, he created his own family, and he has his own children who have their own cousins. That's kind of the way life works. So, yes, I, ha- I know I have a cousin who's in California who's a third cousin who's, you know, I think in the minor league baseball. Cool. For me, I have no relation to it. For my grandfather, it's a little sad. At the same time, I have cousins I'm very close to who are my first cousins and second cousins. That's just the fact of life. But for Yosef, he was petrified that what would that mean if... Yo, if Yaakov's family fell apart, the covenantal community, this, this idea, this notion of monotheism, and everything that Avram introduced to the world, Yitzhak then perfected and Yaakov then brought into reality, would disintegrate, would dissipate, would disappear. And Yosef said to himself, how can I hold it together? How can I ensure that now that we are 12 siblings, we will go, even once Yaakov is no longer with us, the, everything that he stood for would still be with us. He said there's only one way that can happen. If there's a strong ruler, a strong leader, who will allow these ideals to be perpetuated. So that was his first, his first thing. Well, we have, we, we have a religious framework in what, what, that we, li- we live our lives. Yosef, this is all it was. All of Judaism, using an anachronism, but all of this, what called Judaism, was these 12 siblings. And what happens when one goes this way, and one goes that way, and one goes this way, it's over. What's going to hold them together? Well, held them together so far is Yaakov, and Yisrael, and Avram. Well, his values, uh, values. But it will, what happened to Lot when he left? What happened, I'll tell you this much, what happened to all the, when, with Avram, we say Avram, when he traveled, he took, took all the people that he made with, that he, Asu Becharan, he made in Haran, with all the converts. We never hear of them again. We never hear of them again. Right? By the way, Rabbi J.J. Shachter, one of my mentors, he loves to say, it's a very good point. He talks to rabbis, especially young rabbis. He says, ultimately, you can have many people you make in Haran, but who do you take with you? Your family. So when it comes to the congregation versus family, who takes priority? Your family. So you should all know that. Sorry. <laughs> he says, yeah, he goes, he goes, I, he, says, he, goes, he goes, I know. At the end of the day, who's going to be standing around the hole in the ground looking down at me? Family. My family. Everyone else, they're gone. That's, they're your priority. So that's, that's the idea here. So that was number one. Number two. Number two, he was also concerned knowing that that Avraham was promised, was promised, and this was a negative promise, that he would would have a child, and that child would have another child, and and they'd create an entire people. But part of that promise was also we'd end up in a land, a foreign land, the land of Egypt, where we'd be put into servitude. Put into a foreign land that had different values, different mores, different ideals, different ways of thinking. And Yosef also realized that even if the family stays together, once we go into the land of Egypt, how do we know we're going to emerge? 
Maybe at some point, like what is, what is Martin Luther King's, what did he say? The, the, the arc of the, uh, of the universe curves towards justice? So we would be freed. But who's to say we'd be freed and then we'd emerge still holding the Abrahamic covenant intact? Maybe we just assimilate and become like every other person in Mitzrayim. Every other person in Egypt. So how is he going to ensure not only that we stay together as a family, but also emerge out of Egypt as a people, as a Jewish people? It's these two things, these two major concerns that led him to, say, to have these dreams of saying, I have to be a leader. Or at least, or God saying to him, I'm thrusting this leadership upon you to ensure that when you go into Ibitrayim, you're going to ensure not only are you, are you going to stay a people, but you're also going to stay a people intact with the values of Avraham, the ideals of Yitzchak, and the way of life of Yaakov. If you look in the quote from Reisalvich, I, I brought down here, and then we'll see, by the way, how Yosef not only had this, these thoughts, but he ended up living this life. This is a quote from the book from Five Addresses, which is Reisalvich's uh, uh, five addresses he gave at the Mizrahi Convention. So as I told you before, when Reisalvich joined Mizrahi, the, the, the Zionists, a break from his family. So he very much identified with Yosef, who's talking about, as we mentioned a minute ago, having to break with his family, having to break with his family, having to introduce new ideas. He says as follows, What did Joseph seek? To what did he aspire? What foreboding troubled him? The answer is, an obscure feeling of insecurity frightened him. What were the elements of this insecurity? The biblical Joseph was not persuaded that Yaakov dwelt in the land of his father's wanderings, would endure for long. The word, your seed shall be strangers in an alien land, kept tolling in his ears. He saw himself and his brothers in an alien environment far from the land of Canaan, in new circumstances and under new conditions of life. In his dream he saw, behold, we are binding sheaves. We are no longer in Canaan. We are in the land of Egypt. We could no longer be shepherds. We are integrated into a new economy with new styles of living, characteristics, and laws. Basically, he dreamt of a new framework within which the unity of the family could be preserved even in the far-flung places where the creator of the universe would scatter them. His constant preoccupation was the continuation of Abraham's tradition amidst a new economic structure and civilization. The brothers did not understand him, for they looked upon the future as a continuation of the present. They perceived all their problems from within the framework of their life in Canaan. In the traditional surroundings and the thoroughly familiar habitat of the patriarchs, they did not need new framework or novel economic methods. The biblical Joseph relates, And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars bow down to me. There is a secular, great, and powerful technology creating, creating wonders and changing the foundations of our life. Even if it is true that in Canaan we can get along without it, his secular culture entails destructive elements, many negative and perverse aspects finally we will have to relate to it the confrontation will not take place in Canaan however where the temple of life flows serenely but the new alien land so what he's saying is a number of things one is we're going to go down to Egypt as we just said and I'm I'm concerned I'm scared what's going to be and the brothers couldn't perceive this the brothers just saw life for as it was they weren't dreamers They they didn't have the vision of Yosef for them whatever problems are going to happen we can figure it out. We can, we can figure it out because we, we, we've done this. Our father did this. Our grandfather did this. We live in Canaan. They couldn't envision. They couldn't see. They, could, they didn't have the clairvoyance to notice that things might be different than what it was now. And for that, they resented Yosef for saying, no, things will change. It's scary when the prophet gets up there and says, things are going to change. More than that, Yosef said to them, 
that we're now living in the serene Canaan, just living among ourselves. So what are the biggest issues we have? It's, again, sibling rivalry. It's, once you enter into an alien place with alien values and culture, it's a whole different ballgame. You're going to have to learn to live with people who hold different views. You're going to have to learn to contend with different views. You're going to have to learn to know what it means to be able to live in a society that on the one hand has what to offer you, but on the other hand has what that you have to reject. It's a whole different tension. There's a certain ease to live secluded, sequestered, cloistered off from the world. It's easier that way. It doesn't work. But it is easier that way, and theoretically, if you can live in a monastery, not have to deal with whatever challenges the world, there's an ease to it. But reality will hit you in the face at some point, you can't do so. And Yosef is saying to them, we can't do so. And the brother's like, no, 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 but we want to do so. We hope to do so. We hope to do so. They built on each other. We'll get to that in one minute. Yosef said to my feet, we will not be able to maintain the separation between us and the surroundings. Right now, again, we can live among ourselves, we can trade among ourselves. If we will not be prepared for new conditions, the environment will swallow us. On the other hand, we think of future, we can plan. They wanted the status quo. He was saying the status quo, while it's ideal, perhaps, it's not going to be, we can't maintain it. It's also interesting to notice, we think of a dreamer as someone who lives a rosy existence. You're dreaming. I had a dream. But like dreams can sometimes bring great pain. I know we, know, we talk about this in this forum, but we spoke about it once this year. Someone who's a Navi, a prophet, oftentimes we find people running away from being a prophet. Yonah runs all the way to Ninveh. Yermio tries to run away. To be a prophet, it's a lot of pain to, be, to have vision, to be able to notice things that other people around you don't notice. It, 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 it can be painful because... You have, to, you have to see things. People can be very happy. And you have to shake them a little bit and say, no, 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 no. You think you're happy. You think it's going to be good, but like, you're living, you know, you're the child, actually. You're the naive one. And I'm the, I'm the one who sees things from the think. And it's, and it, therefore, we, we see that it's through, it's through Yosef, who comes to his brothers and says, wake up. Wake up. Realize it's not always going to be this way that creates this animosity. But I want to take it a step further. Because it, what ends up happening is that Yosef then lives this credo of being able to not only say things different than his brothers, but actually be someone who stands against the tide, who's able to live there and do things different than everyone else. And I'll tell you what, he pays the price for it. He pays the price dearly for it, not just because he's sold into slavery, which again, be sold into slavery is a dear price to pay, but his life just becomes this, this, this tragedy where time after time again, he's willing to stand up for what he believes in against everyone else, and he gets thrown into prison again. And he gets, he, he's, he's an outcast. But he ends up becoming a tragic model of what it means to live in an alien society with, different, with a different vision, with a different vision of ideals, of morals, of the conception of what the good is, and to be able to sacrifice and pay the price to be ultimately what it is to be a Jew in the exile, to be different. To be different. When Yaakov, well, let's pause there. Any questions on that? Okay. When Yaakov was giving the blessings to his to all the sons, when he gets to Yosef, see, he's, he's giving blessings out. This is in Vayichi at the very last moment of his life. He gets to Yosef and he says to Yosef as follows: Vayimrohu Archers bitterly assailed him. They shot at him and harried him. Yet his bow stayed taut. 
and his arms were made firm. It's poetry. They were assailing him, they were shooting at him, yet his arms, his bow stayed taut, his arms were made firm. What does that mean? What does that mean? I think this is really the key to Yosef. Yaakov, he's saying to him that despite what people are doing to you and yelling at you and everything happening in your life, you stayed firm. Yosef's strength, Rabbi Salvatic writes, manifested itself in the strange ability to survive with a separate spiritual identity under circumstances and conditions that warranted complete assimilation and integration. Rabbi Salvatic goes on to say that, quoting Aristotle, that long ago, Aristotle told, tells us man is a social animal joined to other human beings by doing what they do, adapting to what they do, and trying to, in a way, erase the distinctiveness between them. That's what we do. We follow the pack. We don't like being different. Right? What, what did Thoreau say? If man does not keep pace with his companion, let him step to the, the, the man does not keep pace with his companion, let him step to the music which he hears, drumbeat which he hears ever measured or far away. We don't like doing that either. We don't like st- stepping out of the beat. We, 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 uh, we, 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 try, we try to assimilate. We try to do whatever everyone else around us does. Whereas what did Yosef do from the moment, again, when he comes to his brothers and says to them, hey, I have a different vision. Don't be a nomadic tribe. Let's settle down. Let's plant. Let's till the land. To the fact that he goes to this woman in Potiphar and he says to her, I'm not going to sin. You want me to sin? I'm not going to sin. I see my, I, is it because I see the, the, the vision of my father? Because I know what is right. And even if you're pressuring me and pushing me and hounding me and heckling me and pestering me, I'm not going to do it. Yosef was someone who was able to stand against a tie whose bow didn't break. It's, a tra- it's tragic, but at the same time, he then becomes this, this model for what it means to be able to stand against the tide. In fact, when Yo- Yaakov, excuse me, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe is not allowed into, it's interesting, Moshe and Yosef have the same request. Both of them want to enter into the promised land. Moshe never makes it to the promised land. Yosef does. When he passes away, they bring his body there. And there are those who say because Yosef, well, Yosef, what happens to Moshe? Moshe, when he runs away, he comes, he comes to Midian, as we learned this week. He gets to Midian, and he saves these, these, these girls at the well. The girls come home, they say, they say to their father, to Israel, we were saved, the father of who they say, Ish Mitzri, an Egyptian man. There are those who say, what happened? Because Moshe introduced himself as an Ish Mitzri. That's how he identified himself. Egyptian, he grew up in Egypt, he grew up in Paris, Palace, that's how he saw himself. Now he's a man, an Egyptian man in exile. Whereas Yosef never lost his identity. Even when he was living in Mitzrayim, he saw himself as an Ivri, as a, as, as, as a son of Yaakov. And for that reason, he was able to enter into the land of Israel. For that reason, even when he was a viceroy in Egypt, he recognized he was different. He was distinct. And you know what? Because of that, they also, he paid for it because they recognized it as well. And they never treated him as one of their own. They always recognized for pragmatic reasons. They needed his help. They needed his help. They needed his clever ideas for saving the economy and ultimately saving the country. But they always looked at him as distinct. Yosef was able to live, not just preach and talk about and dream about being different, but he lived that way as well. Right, Salvechik points out, and it's the book called Days of Deliverance, Essays on Purim and Hanukkah. He points out, and this brings us to this week's parsha. He says that Yosef and Yaakov, both of them, they end up becoming a model for what it means to live in the exile, in Gullus. In two very different ways. Yosef in his way and Yaakov in his way. Yosef in his way and Yaakov in his way. So listen to what he says. Let's read it inside. Jacob, he said, was taken away from his parental home and went through a long night of darkness, misery, and distress. 
His assignment was to live in exile. Abraham didn't live in exile. He tried to visit Egypt for a short time, but he became entangled over Sarah and was deported. Isaac could never leave Israel. The first to live in exile was Jacob. He was burdened with the mission of living in exile, of proving to the world that the covenantal community is capable of practicing Abrahamic unique moral code, of being close to the Almighty, of employing a lifestyle of saintliness, not only in the promised land, but in exile, far from the hills and valleys of Hebron and Shechem. In love and Garti, I have sojourned with Lavan, yet I observed the 613 mitzvos. I still managed to keep all the mitzvos. Ya- Yaakov Jacob stayed with Laban for, for 20 years, enough time to settle down and become a citizen of Haran, and to consider himself a veteran resident of Haran. He could have said in Laban Yashafti, I live there, I settled there. But he said Garti sojourned there. He felt a stranger in Haran. And with the, the way his son Yosef later felt a stranger in Egypt, he had not assimilated, he had not integrated himself into Laban's society and community, he had not accepted their morals, their code of ethic, their lifestyle. He sojourned in Haran for a long time, yet he, pers- he preserved his moral religious identity, his commitment to the God of Abraham, his commitment to the way of life that the God of Abraham sanctioned, his commitment to the promised land. All these commitments and many more were not affected at all. Yaakov was dedicated, as dedicated at the end of his 20 years of servitude in Lovin's house as he was the first night he spent on the cold stones in Bethel when he pledged, the Lord should be my God. At the completion of his sojourn in Haram, the angel of God revealed himself to Jacob, I am the God of Bethel, where you did anoint a pillar, where you did a vow, a vow to me. In other words, he remained loyal to your, you remain loyal to your past spiritual heritage and faith to me. This is the story of Yaakov. That being faithful happens even in exile, in the dark exile, in a place where things are not rosy, when, things are, when there's persecution. When you're being constantly, you're, when everything you're trying to do is, kind of, is being constantly switched up by an evil, your evil host. Yosef, however, was burdened with a similar task. He again had to prove that Abraham's covenant would be practiced outside the promised land, that the moral laws were not contingent upon geography and chronology. The difference between Yaakov and Yosef's assignment is a dual one. First, Jacob had to prove that the Torah is reliable in poverty and oppression. That the immigrant, no matter how hard he has to work for a livelihood, no matter how poor and oppressed he is, is capable, if he makes up his mind, to give devotion and loyalty to his ancestral tradition. It's a powerful idea. Think about the turn of the century when so many Jews showed up to America, poverty-stricken, with nothing, and yet somehow found a way to scrap together a few dollars to either create a yeshiva day school system, which now is it's a miracle, or to send their kids to school on a Sunday to do, to, to do the little they could, even though they had nothing. They literally had nothing and not assimilate. That's what Yaakov was. Yaakov was saying that even though you're an immigrant and you have nothing and you're poverty-stricken, the, the Abrahamic covenant, the Torah is realizable even in this environment. Yosef's mission was to demonstrate that enormous success, unlimited riches, admiration, prominence, and power are not in conflict with a saintly covenantal life. The immigrant, no matter what his destiny turned out to be, glorious success or miserable failure, can, if he possesses the royal quality of either Jacob or Joseph, attend to his commitment. And secondly, Jacob had a manifest his heroic quality in a backward country. Haran was a pastoral camp. Joseph demonstrated his heroic action in the, in the most advanced civilization of antiquity in Egypt. This is where Rizal writes. 
just fleshing out this idea of Yosef. Yosef, again, was someone who was able to stand against a tide, who demonstrated that even living in Egypt, having everything, he was still able to maintain who he was, maintain his ideals, and say that the Torah is still relevant, and I can still maintain it, living where I was. And he contrasted in a fascinating way to Yaakov, who lived in the dark oppression, and also said the Torah applies here as well. And both of them have what to teach us about living in exile. Rabbi Salvechik then goes on to say that historically, we have done a lot better in the exile of Yaakov. When, the, when, we, weren't, when we were rejected from the world around us, when the, the society said no, when they said no, no Jews allowed, and we had to stay, maintain our own identity because we were forced to, so we did pretty, pretty well. It's when the world opened up to us. That's when the assimilation started, and that's when we struggled with the exile of Yosef. That's when we struggled with saying, like Yosef said, I don't care, brothers, what you think. You need a leader right now. And God appointed me, so I'm going to come out there, even if you're going to hate me for it. And I'm going to say, um, we've got to stay together. We've got to band together. We've got to keep this alive. We've got to go to Egypt and keep this going. We've got to recognize that even though we have a different vision, even though we have a different approach, that is value, and we're going to find a way to make it go. There's the exile of Yosef that we struggle with. And we have to think about how we can maintain it in this dark, in this, I guess not dark, but this wonderful gullus of the trying that we're in nowadays. So that's what Roy Salvatic says. We do have anti-Semitism, but let's be honest. The anti-Semitism we have now pauls in comparison to the anti-Semitism that many of our ancestors faced, as scary as it is. One last idea once we're here, and this is just a quick Hanukkah idea. Right, Salvechik points out, and this is a separate idea, just from Yosef. He said, if you look at Yosef's dreams, he had two dreams. He had dreams, where he, dreams of material success, of saying that we as a people can materially do well. The she is bowing down, that whatever is going to happen, we're going to be successful. But he also had dreams of, more, of the celestial bodies bowing down, a spiritual success. And Rabbi Salvechik points out, he says, I'm not a, a, an interpreter of dreams, but what Yosef seems to be saying is that we have to be aspirational. On the one hand, we have to dream to be successful. Successful financially, successful physically in, our, in, our, in, in where we are in life. And that's not a bad dream. We also have to recognize that at the same time, while we, we, we dream of success in our physical lives, spirit, in, in, our, in our lives when it comes to business and our careers, that does not come in conflict with also being aspirational in our, in our spiritual lives as well. And sometimes you, people think it's a give and take. If I'm successful in one area, that comes at the cost of being successful spiritually. You know what? So I'll give more tzedakah, and I'll find ways to compensate for it. But ultimately, I'm not going to maybe be the Talmud Chacham, or I'm not going to be able to spend that amount of time in shul learning or going to minion, because, look, there's a give and take, and I'm going to spend time in one area, and, ho- and I'll find a way to compensate, but I, I can't be aspirational in both. And Rastavidjik says, no. Yosi was saying, be aspirational, be dream, dream about both. Dream of being aspirational when it comes to your physical situation, your career, but also be, dream and be aspirational about your spiritual life. And he goes, that's what the Hashemunayim were as well. The Hasmoneans. He says, they dreamt. They said, we're going to be successful, stand up against an army. But the moment they were successful, what did they do? The moment they persevered, they put down their swords, they put down their spears, they put down their swords. And they went to the base of Migdash to light the menorah, symbolizing the spirituality. That there too, they were aspirational as well. How can we light the menorah and illuminate the world with Torah? 
idea that comes out of the menorah, of the Hashanahim, of Yosef's dreams, is to recognize that in both areas of our life we could be aspirational and we should be aspirational. And now I have a drasha for Shabbos. Good Shabbos.